All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. We're glad that you've come to worship and study in the Word together. Would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 this morning? As we turn back to Genesis chapter 3, we're getting near the end of a series called Foundations of the Faith, and I believe we'll wrap it up next week. And uh, Genesis chapter 3 is really a pivotal chapter in developing our understanding of the world, of the human condition, of God, and of salvation. You know, people talk about uh, what is the story of the Bible, and it's good to have an idea of what the total story of the Bible, because look at this. There's a bunch of pages here. There's a bunch of words, a bunch of accounts, a bunch of different things, and it's good to have some sort of, of rubric or some way of looking at the word, and here's a good one. Here's a good one. You've probably heard this before. Four main moves of the Bible. Creation, that's what we've been studying. The fall, what we'll study today and see in Genesis chapter 3. Then redemption or salvation, that God is buying back, he is gaining back his lost and fallen creation. And then there is the new creation or the restoration of all things when God makes all things new. So four big moves of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption. And then restoration or the new creation. Y'all have already done this. Look at, look at this uh, painting I'm putting up on the screen. You may have seen this back in the children's church uh, area with a little label of this painting. One of the things we've been doing in Awana this year is uh, one of our resident artists, Cody Nelson. And Cody was the one that op- uh, read our opening scripture. Uh, we found out that Cody has uh, a painting ability. And so I said, well, wouldn't it be cool if through Awana this year we painted some of the stories of the Bible, we, meaning you, Cody, and, and tell the story that goes along and give them this, this arc, if you will, of what the Bible teaches. And so this was the first one I believe that Cody did in Awana, and he was helped by his able narrator, Mary. She actually reads and tells the story because, you know, it's so hard to paint and talk at the same time. Right, Cody? Pretty hard. And so he painted this painting about the creation and the fall and entitled it the fall i don't know if you can see this can y'all see the man and the woman up there upper right now we had to crop this thing to get it to fit and uh, i would encourage you to go back in the children's church area and look at that so you see there the first man and the first woman what else do you see up there See the birds, some of the other beasts of, that God has created, you know, the, to inhabit the, uh, the air. What else do you see? See a waterfall? All right, what else? Trees. That looks like Boone County in some places, or Newton County, doesn't it? What else do you see? Gosh, I'm getting older and older. Right? Is, is, is the fruit tree there? I think that may have got, gotten cropped off accidentally, but there is a tree in the lower right that's got these red I mean it's a red delicious apple right Cody is that what you painted there so emblematic of what we've been talking about the the the, I don't know was that the tree of life or was that the uh, tree the forbidden tree the forbidden tree I mean it's up to the artist I don't know you know we're we're trying to get a little culture around here First Baptist Church Valley Springs so so there is that that tree that's got the little red fruits we talked about last week the tree of the knowledge of good and evil We also talked about how there were many trees, many fruit trees, and God gave this great freedom to Adam and Eve, put them in this beautiful place to walk with him, to 
talk with him to enjoy creation and to freely eat of all of the different fruit trees except for the one. He said, don't, don't eat that one. For when you do in that day, you will surely perish. So we talked about that. One thing, I don't know. I don't, there's one important piece of, of the passage we looked at last week that I don't see in the painting, and that is the serpent. Is the serpent there, Cody? Where, where's he at? But, well, we cropped him. So he is there. I didn't see the serpent, but that's an integral part of the story. The one who tempted Adam and Eve. And we said that in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it identifies who is that serpent, the ancient dragon or serpent of old, that is Satan, this one who was kicked out of heaven for trying to usurp God, take his worship, fill the place of God, and that is still what he's doing today, and that's what he was doing back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and with Eve. And I think it's a well-done piece of art. You know, uh, uh, Sheila asked me about the cover for the bulletin. And so I said, just put something from Genesis chapter 3. And she had a bunch of naked people on there. No, not really. Not really. You understand it's pretty tough, you know. Uh, 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 you want something artistic there and you go, let's don't get too graphic here. This is church. I don't want to get in trouble over the bulletin cover. And, and the same with Cody's painting. I thought, you know, that's kind of neat because uh, and I'm sure that was by design, right? So he didn't know whether to put them naked or clothed or whatever, fig leaves. And, and you can really get in trouble, especially with kids' stories. But, but this isn't just a kid's story. In fact, it's not a kid's story. So we have this man and this woman here, and you can scarcely, barely, probably not even make out which is the man, which is the woman. Both are culpable. You can't see if they're clothed yet or they're not clothed. You can't see their race. You can't see their faces. And really, in a lot of ways, I think what we should understand in looking at that and seeing just these hazy characters that represent humanity is that we should see that they represent all of us. They represent all of us. If you want to know what the story of us really is, it's their story. It, that is our story. Now, there are some pieces they had that we don't have. They they walked in this perfect place, walked with God before sin, and we've not known that. But their story from Genesis chapter 3 onward is our story. And so I think that we should all put ourselves there. You, listen, this is a hard passage. We're right here in the holidays and everyone wants to feel good and all of that. This is a hard passage. And it's going to talk about sin and fallenness and the wickedness and the evil that comes from each of us as well. One thing I don't want you to hear me say today or even hint at is that somehow I'm better than you. Or Christians are better than others. Or Baptists are better than Methodists or whatever. Here's really what you should hear. We're all in this story together. For all have sinned. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And fallen into rebellion and ruin and lostness. It's the story of us. So let's read Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 15 today. Picking up where we left off last week, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is after they have eaten from that tree that they weren't supposed to. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Let's stop right there. I want to begin in our exploration of this passage, noting this in verse 7, the first part of verse 7, what I call the troubled conscience of the sinful man and woman. The troubled conscience of the sinful man and woman. After they eat, something happens. This is kind of strange. Something happens when they eat. All of a sudden, something, I would say, internal happens. There is a change, there is an awareness that I believe ultimately what they're hearing is their guilty human conscience. No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? It says immediately their eyes were opened. So it's some, some perception of theirs changes. Their eyes are open. They now see something that wasn't there before or they didn't see before. All right, Their, their eyes were open and what did they see? They see that they were naked. I think this is the human conscience, the guilty conscience speaking to them. And I I just couldn't get away from this idea as I was studying all week. I was going to go away from this, but even came back to it again last night. Let's think for a moment about the human conscience. What is it? And what I'm trying to argue is that that is what they are feeling and hearing from in this moment the human conscience, a God-given capacity of the human soul to evaluate ourselves against the standard and the morals and the virtues that we have adopted. Okay, I'm just going to say it that way. A God-given capacity that it's, it's operative. It's going on and it's measuring our actions and our life and our thoughts and everything about us up against a moral standard. So in some ways, it's kind of a moral compass that shouts at you speaks to you. Now, some debate this, and this, is, this would be very interesting for you to do some research on your own and contemplate these things. Some people say that human conscience didn't exist until this point. There was no need for it because they're in perfect harmony. Everything was right with the world, with the man, with the woman, with God, so there was no need for conscience, but all of a sudden they eat of this fruit and they develop a human conscience. I don't actually think that that is true, And I'll tell you why here in just a minute. But let me just say, I think their conscience, this inner voice of the mind, of the soul, is shouting at the man and at the woman. That they have violated the standard. Now for us, our conscience is, you know, we're measuring our actions up against the standard that we've adopted. And that standard can be very flawed. And actually, we need to develop that standard more closely according to God's way and according to God's will and His Word. But basically, here was the main command that they had. Don't eat of that tree. That's pretty clear. 
That was the standard. Walk with God. Be his image bearers. Do the duty that God has given us to do. Be stewards. Be his reflection in the world. The man was to reflect God in certain ways uniquely. And the woman also. And the creatures also. And everything all of a sudden in creation is turned up on its head. So instead of God being the sovereign and man being the head of the household and the woman coming under that headship and the beast being under their dominion, all of a sudden, all of that is inverted. And so you have this beast, the serpent, speaking to the woman, the woman telling the man to eat this along with me, and none of them are obeying God. Everything is all out of whack. And their consciences, I believe, are in overdrive. A troubled conscience. What happens when a human conscience senses that the standard has been violated. What, ha- what happens? Y'all have a conscience, don't you? We all do. Well, you feel troubled. You feel anxiety. So all of a sudden, when, when God calls Adam out, he says, I was afraid. There's a fear and anxiety that comes from the human conscience that knows that they have viola- we have violated a standard. There's a sense of guilt a sense of guilt. Uh, I mean, I've done something wrong. I'm going to be exposed. And I think that's some of why they're kicking against the idea all of a sudden that they are naked. It brings trouble, internal trouble. And we do all kinds of things to try to soothe the troubled conscience. You know, here's one of the reasons I think that the conscience was already there. It's part of the likeness of God in Adam and Eve. It's because the conscience also does positive things. There is the guilty conscience, but there is also the good conscience. The good conscience is that within us. It's saying, yes, you are walking according to the light and according to the standard and according to God. And what does that produce in us? It produces peace, a sense of peace and well-being that we are in harmony with God in the world. It produces pleasure. So the conscience has a negative peace, but also has a positive peace. I just did a little bit of biblical study. Let me give you a couple of verses that you might look up. I started thinking, well, what does the Bible actually teach about conscience? It doesn't say it here, and actually it doesn't say it hardly anywhere in the Old Testament, but we see it repeatedly Referenced in the New Testament, Paul is probably the primary one who talks about the human conscience and how we as Christians should think about conscience. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Here's a passage where Paul talks about, you know, in Romans, it talks about the Jew and not living according to the law of God. But what about the Gentile who doesn't have the law of God? Well, in Romans 2, 14 and 15, he talks about how the Gentiles who don't have the Jewish law, they do have a law written on their hearts. God has put it there. And he says, and their conscience confirms this. So the Gentiles, who they don't have that Old Testament law, but they do have a law on their hearts, a moral code. And their conscience is measuring the Gentile against that. He talks about the importance of living with a good conscience. Where Paul talks about this most is when he's uh, uh, ministering to his young disciples, Titus and Timothy, but he also talks about it in his own life. He says, I strive to maintain good faith and a good conscience. That is so important. Some verses you might look up, look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. He talks about 
false teachers in the church that are hypocritical liars. And he says their consciences are seared. Did you know that you can mishandle your human conscience? In other words, you can so diminish it or suppress it and ignore it. And all of a sudden that alarm that is meant to tell you that something is wrong in your life. All of a sudden you suppress it so much you don't know good from evil, truth from falsehood. And he calls them hypocritical liars whose consciences are seared. I tell you, that's a place we don't want to be is having a seared human conscience. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. He tells Timothy to fight the fight of faith, having a good faith and a good conscience. And he says, I'm going to warn you that some have rejected these things. And by doing so, they shipwreck your faith. How many of you want your faith shipwrecked and ruined? then what do you need to do? He says here, you need to fight the fight of faith and you need to strive to maintain a good conscience. So I would say this, out of, out of that little study that I did, that God has given us this moral barometer or thermometer, this, this warning system called the conscience that is for our good. And we need to listen to it. We need to be aware when our conscience is speaking to us, that is a God-given capacity that is meant to lead us somewhere to do something. So what do we do when our conscience is crying out that we have done wrong? Here's what you should do. I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead in the sermon. You should run to God. But what do we normally do? We hide from God. We don't run to God. We run from God. We do the exact opposite thing that we should do. And here we see Adam and Eve doing that exact thing. Instinctively, their flesh says, run and hide. Cover everything up. So now let's look. This is found in the last half of verse 7 through 13 that we read. Let's look at their attempt to cover up their sin, to silence their conscience. What do they do? They're feeling exposed. They're feeling embarrassed. They're feeling personally vulnerable before God and before one another. What do they do? They literally try to cover themselves up. The first fashion designers in the world, they take some fig leaves and they sew them to cover up their nakedness. And that's what we try to do first of all. We try to hide. We try to cover over when our conscience, conscience is saying we have done wrong. And so they're, they're trying to cover their nakedness, to put a barrier between themselves and that one who God has created for them to be most intimate with. There is now a division. There is now a barrier. They're hiding behind their fig leaves. Then what happens? They hear God in the garden. This says that they walked with God. God actually came down. Heaven met earth. God came down and walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve walked with him. And so as was his habit, he comes down. God is ready to walk with Adam. And he says, where are you? Why did he have to ask that? Because they're hiding, not just behind fig leaves. I love this. This is the first real tree camouflage right here. They put fig leaves, and so it says they hear God, and they want to hide from him. So where do you hide when you're clothed in fig leaves? Near the fig trees, right? It's camouflage. Freeze. I hear God coming. You know, I don't know if this was like a ghillie suit. Is that what they call it? Where you make this, this suit of 3D leaves and all of this. And they're trying to hide from God. Do you recognize the foolishness of that, by the way? We, sh we should. 
I think we recognize it maybe more easily in their lives than ours. But to say they actually thought they could camouflage themselves where the all-seeing God could not see them behind the fig leaves and the tree leaves. They think that they can hide from the all-knowing God who is already quite aware of what they have done. But they're hiding. They're trying. What a foolish notion. And it's just as foolish for us, listen folks, to think that when our consciences bear witness that we have sinned, to think that we can cover it over with clothing or excuses or hiding from God is just utter foolishness. And so God calls Adam out, Adam, where are you? And what does Adam say? I'm hiding. At least he, at least he answers. Right? He's doing the right thing here as God calls him out. Well, I, I'm, I was hiding. Why are you hiding, Adam? Because I was afraid. I was fearful. I was naked. Who told you you were naked? What has awakened in you this idea that you are naked? God knows. The human conscience, I think. It's Adam's conscience saying, you're naked, you're guilty, and hide. So God asks him some questions. Did you, did you eat from the tree? That's a great question. Did you sin? Did you eat from the tree? Now, before Adam gets to his whimpering answer, he more boldly gives some excuses, right? So, so that's the next thing. We try to hide ourselves, make ourselves look better. We try to hide from God, but when we finally answer, what do we do? Well, we make excuses. Now, instead of running to God, confessing his sin, opening it up, here's what he says. Well, really, God, there's two people to blame, the woman and you. Right? It's the woman that you gave me. Who gave it to me and I ate? Right? The big, bold, the woman that you. Why her? But I did eat. Right? So excuses. He makes excuses. He, it's the pass the buck. Point the finger at someone else. That's what we do. Make excuses. Blame someone else. I tell you, we just do that. It's my parents' fault. It's my job's fault. It's the pressures of this world. Instead of just saying, you know what? Yes, it's me. I did do the very thing that you told me not to do. And so Adam says, yep, I ate. But it, of course it was the woman you gave me. So he turns to the woman. That is, God turns to the woman. What have you done? Are you culpable? Did you actually do that? Did you eat and did you give it to him? It's the question, what have you done? And at least Eve, I mean, she's got a little more integrity than him at this point, right? I mean, I mean yes, I did, but I was deceived by the serpent. She just says, I, it was stupid. I, I thought it was different than it's going to be, than it is. Yes, I was deceived, but I did eat. But the serpent, he deceived me. Let me stop there before we get to the last point and just say this. When your conscience has told you that you've sinned against God's standard, what do you do? Well, we hide. We make excuses. We blame others. But the question becomes at some point, will I just confess 
and own up to my shortcomings and my sin. This is so critical, so critical that we see the absolute necessity before we can be saved, before God can do what he's going to do, that we have to own up to this. There's a lot of easy grace, they call it, easy salvation preached in the church today, which basically says that, you know, God wants to take you to Disney World. He wants to give you more than you've got. It's a gospel that doesn't reckon with the depths of human sin and depravity and my own falling short. And so we have to see this, that before God can do his thing, they've got to own it. You have to own it. What do you do? Is your conscience screaming out to you today? Bearing witness? Gosh. It's a hard thing to be a preacher and know that you're going to be preaching about sin. And I'll tell you what happens all through the week. You become very aware of your own sin. And also, I will tell you that preparing for this, even sitting there this morning, sins of the past, things that I had long buried in the gray matter and thought I had ejected from my memory came flooding forward. And I'll tell you what you got to do. You just got to say, I did that, and it was sin. It was a horrible thing. God, I own that, but I want you to own it. Would you do something with it? And so, really, the Christian response is, the right response, the biblical response is that we got to bring this to God. we got to quit hiding from God. we got to run to Him, and we got to open up our hands and say, yes, I've sinned. And not stay there wallowing in it, but let God do something. Hey, listen, they couldn't cover over their sins. There's not enough fig leaves in this world to cover it over. There's not enough fig leaves or clothes or money or experiences or, or travels or pleasures of this world to truly alleviate our guilty conscience. We can't do enough good, give enough money. We can't do anything on our own except come to God and fall at his feet and ask for his mercy. So here's what I'm telling you. Run to God. Own your sin. What should you expect from God? I think this passage begins to tell us. Does that alarm me? My time's up. Now I'm going to, do y'all hear that or is that just me? Okay. What should we expect from God when we own it? When we admit our sin, we confess our sin. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 again. Here's what we're going to discover. We're going to discover that sin is cursed and the serpent is crushed. Sin's curse and the serpent's crushing. Verses 14 and 15. Here's when God begins to deal with sin. He, he goes down the line. He asks Adam. He asks Eve. And they're all pointing the finger down the line. And so he comes to the serpent. And he deals with sin. Verse 14. Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He pronounces a curse on the serpent. Now I would say that's Satan. Because of his continued rebellion, did you know Satan can never be redeemed? Fallen angels can never be saved. But God is doing something different in humanity. But on the serpent, 
He pronounces a curse. And then next week when we finish up in Genesis chapter 3, we're actually going to find out, of course, and you know this, that Adam and Eve experience the curse, but not in the same way. But he says to the serpent, Cursed are you, and you will be more lowly than every other beast of the field. So one of the things we get from that is that all of the animal kingdom, not just the serpent, the serpent is the most lowly, but every animal, the animal kingdom, will feel the curse of God. In other words, because of sin, there is a rupture and a corruption that comes into the world that touches every living thing. Even the creation itself is groaning and heaving because of sin. There's a brokenness that comes in that is really almost beyond our fathoming. And if we're going to deal with this passage very well, I think that we just need to see the seriousness of sin. God now who has called everything good because of one sin. Now think about this. To us, this seems a little extreme. God, you're actually going to curse and, 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 and reject all of this that you have called good and that you have made that, and that is so glorious because of one sin? Answer, yes. Sin, rebellion against God is so horrible. So horrible that God is casting out this curse on the entire animal kingdom, and especially on Satan himself. And so I can't spend much time there. But just to say that the curse, because of sin, is going to touch and harm every living thing. And all of creation itself will begin to heave and groan and exhibit a brokenness and a fracture and a disharmony and a disintegration and a death that it was never intended by God to experience. The curse of sin. What is sin? Sin is an action, an attitude, or a nature that is in rebellion to God. That's what it is. Actions, attitudes, or a nature that stands in opposition or rebellion to God, God's rule, His holy standard. And that is exactly what has crept into the fallen world. Yes, Satan came and brought a deception, but Adam and Eve partook of it. And all of the world is experiencing the curse that sin has brought. So I want you to think about that for just a minute. One sin. One sin. Sin is so serious that it brings this. But there is a promise, and we need to look at this in verse 15. Be easy to overlook. There's an interesting promise made in verse 15. This is what some call the proto-evangelium. That is the first telling of the gospel in all the Bible. Though it's a little bit cloaked, it's a little bit hazy, but I think it is there. The gospel is in verse 15. And God says, I'm going to do something because sin has crept in through the serpent. I'm not only cursing sin, I'm not going to leave this world in a curse forever. I'm going to do something. There's a promise here made. He says, I will um, make enemies of you and the woman. And here it is, of your offspring, that is Satan's offspring, and of her descendant, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, does Satan reproduce? Does he have offspring? Well, Jesus in the New Testament talks about those who, uh, even some of the Pharisees and religious people being what? Of their father, Satan, the devil. So there are those who will follow in that train and be Satan's offspring. Hey, folks, guess what? This world is in a spiritual battle, and there's only two sides in the battle. There's Satan's side, and there's God's side. Which side do you want to be on? 
And he says to the serpent, of your offspring, I'm going to put an enmity. I'm going to make you enemies of the offspring, the seed of the woman. Who is that? Who is the seed of the woman? It's Jesus. Have you ever thought about the incarnation and how that makes Jesus uniquely only the seed of the woman? He's not the seed of the man. He's the seed of the woman as he is fathered by the Holy Spirit. But in the incarnation, the seed of the woman comes. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen between the seed of the woman and Satan and all of his minions? There's, there's a battle. It says he's going to crush your head, but you're going to bruise his heel. What is the bruising of the heel of Jesus? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a bite that inflicts death that looks like it is a death sentence, but instead it's only a bruising to be recovered by the resurrection. Here, I would just say to you, Genesis 3.15 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what can you expect when your conscience cries out and tells you that you're guilty before God and you decide that you're going to stop hiding from God, running from God, trying to cover over your sin with good deeds or something of your own making and of your own strength? What do you do? What can you expect from God if you fall on his mercies and believe in him? You can expect total victory and restoration. Through Jesus Christ. But the way to come into that is through Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. The truth signaled here is that Jesus brings victory. God is redeeming his world, which is terribly broken and ruptured and corrupted because of sin. Jesus Christ did that. This Christmas... As we do every year, we're going to celebrate the coming of Jesus. You know what we're celebrating? The fulfillment of the promise of the gospel hinted to and given in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to redeem a fallen world. Hey, do you feel this world is broken? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. And it's coming through Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and he invites people who are tired of the charade of personal holiness that we have afforded by ourselves. He invites people who are weary and worn out from religious works. He invites people who are broken because of sin to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And you know what I'll do? I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest and peace and a new life. I will give you resurrection and eternal life. Jesus starts a new family line. We move out of the first Adam and into the second Adam. We become a people who are cleansed and purified and forgiven solely by faith. The scripture that our artist Cody read this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, and you're saved by God's grace through faith. And that's a gift of God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. No matter how fancy your fig leaf garment is, it won't restore you before God. It won't soothe your conscience. It will not bring you forgiveness. Only the covering that we'll look at next week that God gives can forgive you, can cover and soothe the guilty conscience. Would you bow with me today as we move into a time of invitation? Mike's going to come and just play...
And I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news that all the world is guilty before God. But really, I'm not sorry. We need our delusion and our bubble popped and to recognize the fact that we need to be born again. We need forgiveness. Our hearts are messed up. We have all sinned before a holy God. And if you would today, would you just admit that to the Lord? I confess my sin to you. I've fallen short. I need you. Every hour I need you. And if you have never asked God to save you and forgive you by Jesus Christ, you can do that right where you sit today. Just tell him that your conscience is crying out about the guilt of your sin and your shame and ask him to take it from you. Trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross and by the empty tomb to give you life. Cry out to God today, right where you sit. And he'll make you new. He will give you his Holy Spirit to come and to reside with you and to guide you as a deposit guarantee that you will be with him forever in that new creation. Cry out to God. Ask him to save you today. Christian, have you been walking with the Lord a long time, but you've lost sight of the purity that God has in himself and that he wants for us. And the fact is that we all sin. And what is the Spirit speaking to your conscience today? Is there a sin in your life that you just need to ask forgiveness from? Is there some path that you're on that you need to repent from, repent of, and come back to him? and walk closely with him. I would just say to you today, beware of letting your conscience cry out without responding to that in a spiritual way, coming again to the cross of Jesus. Ask him to restore you and make you new. Don't leave this place continuing to hide from the Lord because you can't. And let him give you freedom and life and hope today. Father, today we are thankful. We're thankful that you have seen fit to give us your word, that we might know the story, the story of us, the story of creation that has fallen. But you have promised, and you have done it. You have brought about a Savior in Jesus to make all things new. Lord, today we lean on that scripture in Romans that it says God will soon crush the head of the serpent. That though we live in this time between the first and second coming of Jesus, Lord, today we're looking forward. We're looking up. We're looking ahead to the coming glory when you make all things new. When you give us a new body that is not racked by sin and disease and death. When you restore And you bring about a new Eden, a new world, ruled and reigned by Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, for your kindness, for your mercy. Minister to us, each one in this place, by your spirit to our spirit. That we might be made new and refreshed. In 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.